2: Someone thrust a sword right up from the base of his neck where it joins the spine through to his skull. And that can only be done with Richard on his knees. You know, it's not something you could do both standing. So the question, I think, as a historian, you've got to ask yourselves on the base of that evidence, is, you know, if Richard was killed by the execution, was that normal? No. highly unnormal for a anointed king to be executed in this way on the battlefield. It just doesn't happen.
3: That was Chris Skidmore talking about the killing of Richard III.
0: listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For today's episode, we've spoken to Chris Skidmore, a historian and politician who is currently Minister for the Constitution. Chris has recently completed a major new biography of Richard III, which contains many fascinating new insights into the controversial Yorkist King. He's drawn on these to write the cover feature for our November edition, and he also paid a visit to our Bristol studio recently to share some of his findings. Richard's life has clearly been extensively studied over the years, so when you embarked on this biography, what were you intending to do with it in the first place?
2: Well, when I looked at Richard's life, I'd, I'd done this work on the Battle of Bosworth, my, my last book, looking at sort of how the Tudors you know, rose up from nowhere to become kings of England. And it, and it struck me that as much as the, the story of uh, Henry Tudor's rise to power was about him being in exile, it was also about the sort of decline in Richard III's own power and influence. And I began to think, well, you know, actually, this is a story that I'd like to probably tell myself and... The previous works that are written about Richard III, okay, there are a myriad of of biographies and and works on Richard III. But actually when you look and say, well, what are the key big narrative biographies that exist? You really have to go back to sort of Paul Murray Kendall's biography of 1955 to actually say, right, this is a a full-length feature biography. And otherwise there's Charles Ross's 1981 Yale English Monarchs um, biography. But actually, there's not actually a big book on Richard. So my part of my the reasons for tackling Richard was actually, well, let's get away from looking at him as a sort of, you know, good king versus bad king, because that's always the sort of dilemma, the, the, the two questions that get asked about Richard are, one, you know, was he as bad as everyone makes him out to be? Is as bad as Shakespeare made him out to be? And you've had sort of, you know, the king's supporters and sort of king's opponents. And and I think that argument is a bit stale. So what I've tried to do is, one, to write a, a, a big, meaty biography that gets down into the narrative of Richard's reign explaining who he is. But secondly, to, to try and sort of, I don't know, take a revisionist approach to Richard, which academics have done for a long time, to place the man in the context of his age... And at the same time, to sort of you know get away from the sort of are you a pro Ricardian or are you anti Ricardian, and to sort of t- just tell Richard's story as it was from the contemporary original manuscripts. You know, often we rely so much on Shakespeare, on Thomas More's accounts of, of Richard, and so the product of this book has been sort of to create a, a biographical Richard the Third, brother, protector, king, where I very sort of clearly try to look at the various stages of his life, the fact that for the first thirty years of his of Richard being alive. He was a loyal brother. He supported his the King Edward IV. The next stage of his life was when he wanted to become protector, and sort of 1483, which was when he took the throne, and then finally the last two years of his kingship. So that was sort of the idea, because I, I couldn't find a book that sort of just set down who Richard III was in all the detail that I felt his life deserved.
3: What kind of sources were you using to research this book?
2: So... There are a wealth of printed sources. I mean, thanks to the Richard III Society, you know, their journal, The Ricardian, has over the past sort of 40 years published a lot of letters and documents that are out there, whether they're in the, the British Museum, uh, whether they're in the uh, National Archives or, or scattered across some um, archival collections across the country. But there still are documents that are predominantly there in the National Archives, uh, what are called um, C82 in the Chancery Files, uh where you can find Richard's famous letters when he finds out that the duke of buckingham's rebelled against him and he's scribbled down the bottom which, you know gives a sense of sort of Richard's personality he's absolutely outraged that um buckingham's turned against him but there are plenty of other things that are in those archives that aren't published at the moment and we still live in a time as historians where, you know, one day everything will be published. Everything will be online. I'm very lucky actually sort of living an age at the moment that there's still documents that haven't been used that actually that well has not drained. And um, you can find out jewels that Richard purchased. You can you know, giving a sense of like the clothes he wore. You can sort of, you know, thread these things together to create a sort of intimate tapestry of the king's life. And at the same time, there are uh, documents by sort of foreign observers. Um, I start the book um, looking again at a document, um, a diary, by someone called Nicholas von Poplaw, And he was a, a Silesian knight, a German knight, who visited the Richards Court when he was n- living near York um, in uh, May, June 1484. And this document's never been properly, wholly translated to English. There's been sort of paraphrases of it. So I thought this was a great opportunity to get it properly retranslated, to look afresh again at sort of this, you know, this, this certain glimpse of a, of a, of a foreigner you know, visiting Richard's court, and and there are opportunities still, I think, to sort of reassess the king's life. You know, to not only go over existing documents that may be printed, but what you find, and what I found as a historian all the way through my career, is that you look at the printed document, you go back to the original manuscripts, and often you see crossings out, or you'll see. So one of the things I, I found was a. Um, document when Richard is protector and you see suddenly that he begins to want to take more and more power but he's got this sort of council this royal council supporting Edward V and uh, in one of the letters it sort of says and, you know, through the support of my dearest uncle Richard III and then it's been only in, added in and also the other lords of the council as if they were an afterthought and you can sort of see a narrative of Richard beginning to sort of take more and more power and initially just say well I, you know, I'm the one in charge so uh, getting back to the original manuscripts for me it's been sort of you know really crucial and it's helped me with writing the scenes of the Ballad Bosworth and also sort of you know Richard's development as king um, there have been other Sources such as Polydor Virgil's um, Anglia Historia, which um, was printed and in the Tudor period in Henry VIII's reign, but the original manuscript is in the Vatican. Um, going back to that, retranslating the Latin, you find things that have been cut out of the printed version. So, actually, always uh, like looking at the past, you've got the, the sources that are there, but you're almost are sort of writing a history of the sources by sort of trying to find out things that they still yet to give up um, into the present day.
3: And did you find any kind of major revelations in your archival research?
2: Well, I think one of the most interesting revelations that I found was actually looking around this whole process of when Richard was protector in 1483. You know, for me, that you know, as a historian and a politician, I think 1483 has to be one of the most significant moments in English political history. That Richard comes down from the north, his brother has died suddenly, Edward IV at the age of 41, uh, Edward V is put on the throne... Richard believes he wants to be, you know, protector because that's what Edward IV has set out in his will. But then why does Richard claim the throne? Now, I've sort of been, you know, grappling with this age-old question of, you know, did Richard always want to become king? Or was there a sort of sequence of events that took him into a position where he felt he had no other choice to, but to take the throne? And as part of that, there was a document that I found in the British Library. Sounds odd, but it was a a small scrap of paper, you know, only probably about five centimetres by five centimetres. It's in the Harleian charters and it sets out basically the household expenses of Queen Elizabeth Woodville when she's in sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. And Elizabeth's fled into sanctuary after Richard seized the king and Richard can't get her out of sanctuary. And suddenly on the 13th of June, Richard decides that he's going to execute William Lord Hastings, one of his sort of closest supporters. It comes out of the blue. It's a complete shock to the, 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 the political system. And he claims that Hastings has, has begun a conspiracy against him. And normally this has been dismissed as some kind of Machiavellian plot that Richard's got rid of Hastings because Hastings wants the king on the throne. And Richard's now decided he wants to take the throne and Hastings is in the way. So he's bumped off. But actually what's interesting is by taking this household account, that's in the in the British Library. It mentions someone called John Forster who um, has close connections with the Queen, and I've been able to sort of build a a network of relationships. Proves that the Queen and Hastings may have been in contact with each other, and that actually Richard's accusations that Hastings had actually been part of a conspiracy against him may have been true. So actually, trying to to look again at Richard's own mindset. He believed there was a conspiracy against him. Was it something he made up? No, I think actually he genuinely felt that he had to move quickly to remove Hastings before actually Richard's own position was affected.
3: And so your take on Richard claiming the throne is is really interesting. That's something that you explore in the article you've written for the magazine. So would it be right to say you can move away from the view that he always had this plan to usurp the throne, but the moral was that kind of a gradual process that just happened incrementally?
2: Yeah, absolutely. When we look back now with the benefit of hindsight at what happened, it happened so fast. You know, Edward IV dies on the 9th of April, 1483. Richard is then crowned on the 6th of July, 1483. The space in between those is is, is barely 88 days. And in that 88 day period, you know, with looking back on our early historical records, the accounts written by Dominic Mancini, um, written by Thomas More, obviously Thomas More and Polydor Virgil, then get taken up by the, the Tudor chroniclers Holland said, and Ned Paul, which then taken up by Shakespeare. This pattern is created of Richard seizing a moment, seeing his brothers dead, and then thinking, I'm going to go for the throne myself. Actually, when you go back to the original sources, when you look at the evidence that's available to us of on that day-by-day basis, and I've actually have almost gone through sort of day-by-day day from April through to July. That's why the protector part takes up almost you know, a third of, of the book, is that Richard seems to be in a nightmarish situation where he was a loyal brother. He's been rewarded fantastically. He becomes of Lord of the North as a result of his laws. He's uh, his brother. He's just sort of effectively captured back berwick a huge military triumph for the yorkists marched to edinburgh you know his, his brother is delighted at his military success and rewards him with you know unparalleled control of lands up in the up in the north in the parliament of um, february 1483 and then suddenly edward dies and richard's up in the north this is a young child edward v who is in ludlow who has been brought up by the woodvilles and edward iv seems to have made a will at the very last moment which he sets out that um, Richard should be protector and um, control Edward V. And the Woodville seem to push against this, to deny Edward IV's will from actually sort of reaching fruition. And it seems that, for me, Richard's first intent is to make sure he gets his right, that set out his brother's will, to become protector. And to do so, he links up with Henry Duke of Buckingham, William Lord Hastings, who's not happy about this being a sudden Woodville takeover. A lot of the nobility... You know, do not like the Woodfields through various policies that Edward IV have enacted. And that's the other thing that I try to get across in the book. Is this isn't just about Richard III as a single agent seizing power. He couldn't have done it without the support of a wider nobility behind him. And that's, you know, when you're looking at the dynamics of power, I think, you know, it's really important when it comes to understanding how Richard managed to succeed. He couldn't have done it alone. But to start with, he just wants to his right to become protector. And then he goes down, he decides to seize the king because he needs to do so in order to make sure the Woodvilles don't get into London before him. And then he realises suddenly that actually Edward the V is not that keen, that Richard should have possession of him, that actually Edward V himself is a product of his Woodville upbringing. Uh, he's much closer to the Queen's family than to Richard, who he's not seen for several years. And then Richard begins to realise, even once he's become protector, that as soon as the king is crowned, Everyone wants to, the Woodvilles and also Hastings, want the, wants the king to um, basically ascend to his majority. So Richard is like it's a ticking time bomb that Richard's going to lose his chance of, uh, of any authority, and all the people who he's displaced, including the Queen, are going to come back for revenge. So Richard begins to think actually, this isn't good enough. So he, he, what he decides to do is he's going to use Parliament to approve to that he could be protector after Edward V is crowned. And what he doesn't realise is that various people like Hastings are against this. And then his plan to stay on as protector is thwarted. He then has to execute Hastings. He then begins to realise that actually he's going to have to move himself to possibly you know, kill or be killed moment that he's going to have to seize through himself. But I think he's also persuaded by those nobility, by you know, Henry Duke of Buckingham who put pressure on him to say, no, you've got to go for this. And it's quite instructive, I think, is once after Hastings has been Executed, Richard then seizes um, Richard, Duke of York, the other prince in the tower, seizes him from sanctuary to put him in the tower with his brother Edward V. but the, Elizabeth Woodville is quite happy. she trusts Richard to hand over um, her younger son. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the eldest, Thomas Boucher, takes part in actually getting the child from sanctuary to the tower. No one at the time suspects that Richard's going to seize the throne. They just think they want the younger child ready for the coronation, and then suddenly. At that point, between the uh, 17th of July and the 23rd of July, when Richard decides to actually uh, announce his title of the throne, um, he changes his mind. But how he changes his mind and, and what what's going through his head is equally fascinating. It's not a set plan. They're making it up as they go along. And a lot of Ricardians would say, oh, but that's that point where Richard discovers that actually uh, there's a so-called the pre-contract theory that Edward IV... Himself had actually decided to betroth himself to another woman, Eleanor Talbot, Eleanor Butler, and that then invalidated his marriage to Elizabeth Wood- Woodville and then bastardised the two princes, Edward V and his brother Richard. But when you look at the historical record, it starts off with Ralph Shard giving a sermon on the 22nd of, of uh, June at St Paul's. So R- Richard attends, which he says actually Edward the Fourth himself is illegitimate, and actually, the, Richard's own mother had an affair, and that actually, Richard is genuinely the only legitimate um, heir to the throne. But he forgets to tell his mother that this is their plan. So then they, she's furious. They move on to plan Mark Two, which is to say that actually, Edward the Fourth had a pre-contract with a, a foreign lady. Um, this Dominic Mancini mentions this. And again, that version is then changed to eventually we get to Eleanor Butler. That's the pre contrast So they keep on re-justifying why Richard should be able to seize the throne. But I think the decision has been taken and that is sort of ex post facto evidence that they need to be able to justify Richard's succession to the throne. But it's only done in the last few days, which is why they're scrabbling around for reasons to do so. But for me, you know, Richard taking the throne is almost like mentally he's entering a maze full of rooms. He goes through one room, the door shuts, he can't go back. The logic of his, of his sequencing going through to eventually taking the throne means there's no other alternative for him to, to do so apart from to, to, to seize the throne. But what's interesting is actually a lot of people support him taking the throne. All of Edward's household, Edward IV's household don't suddenly rebel immediately. They support him, they go to Richard III's coronation. It seems while Edward V is still alive in the tower there seems to have been some kind of popular support that actually maybe it's right that we allow Richard III to to remain as king while Edward V remains as a minor. Not quite sure, but it seems that something then changes and we can talk about that in a moment. But to start with, Richard gets away with it and has support of him becoming
3: king. And then I suppose the the huge debate that has always surrounded Richard is what was his role in the disappearance of the prince in the tower? Have you do you feel any closer to solving this mystery, or is it still something that we'll never completely know? I think it is still
2: going to remain one of those great mysteries until some piece of fantastical evidence turns up, you know, proving one way or the other what happened to the princes. For myself, I feel that it's quite clear that they were dead and that people believed they were dead. That's the most important part. But regardless of whether they're alive or not, people believed they were dead. Why did they believe they were dead? Because suddenly, around the time of late September 1483, this steam of rebellion gathers apace ahead and effectively the whole of southern England turns against Richard. They're not looking to put Edward V or his brother on the throne anymore. They're looking to put this distant claimant, Henry Tudor, who's in exile, on the throne. They wouldn't have done this unless they believed the princes were dead. And so it's clear that something happens between Richard being sort of crowned in July. He then goes off on a, a progress tour of, of the rest of the country, goes up north all the way up to York. And it seems that at some point there's a two-stage process. Richard writes this letter in, in the National Archives, again, in the sort of C-81 sort of file um, where he talks about on the 29th of July about an enterprise lately committed. And those people who committed that enterprise are now in the Tower. What was this enterprise? We've got some extra evidence from a foreign chronicler, Thomas Bassan. Um, We've got some other evidence from John Stowe, which suggests that there was an attempt to free the princes in the Tower. And that seems to have gone wrong. Four yeomen of the Guard were executed in that sort of late July, early August period. I think it's at that point that Richard decides to take an executive decision that something must happen to the princes. They're always going to remain this lodestone or sort of target in the prison where people are going to try to to free them. And obviously then there are obviously the the traditional accounts of Richard, you know, you believe Thomas More, um, which is fantastically detailed, um, but you can't verify the story one way or the other. But it does seem that there is a point at which People who were loyal to Richard previously suddenly turn against him, and you can sort of pinpoint that around around the twenty first September, where the Queen's brother Lionel Woodville is arrested. He's previously been given lands and rewarded, and 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 that's the point at which everything seems to change. And oddly, Henry Duke of Buckingham then rebels against Richard. Why he does so, I do wonder whether you know Buckingham may have some involvement. Um, with the princes' deaths. Um, There are are a document was discovered in the College of Arms in 1981 which talked about how the princes were um, removed by the vies, the advice of the Duke of Buckingham. And it's whether Buckingham then decides to join the rebellion because having been implicated in the disappearance of the princes, he realises that he's got to turn quite quickly, otherwise the rebels are going to come after him. But I think it's quite clear that, um, you know, the actual theories about what happened to the princes—you know, whether they're smothered by a feather pillow, whether their throats are slit—there's—I've um, other, I've seen you know a. a fantastical description of how possibly they were bled to death accidentally you know all these things cannot be proved at the moment and uh, you know there's a possibility i think of, of, of returning to the bones that are there in westminster abbey if only one day we you know open that urn that is there that we had the urn opened in 1935 i think it was but obviously we didn't have dna testing then um that will be able to prove one theory but there will always be those who believe that the, you know the prince has got or well, at least Richard, Duke of York, then became Perkin Warbeck. That sort of there was always sort of a opportunity for him to to escape. But I think for myself, you know, the mystery is there. I try to tackle it sort of by presenting all the available evidence that there is, in order for the reader to make their own mind up. But it is clear in terms of the political narrative at the time, you know, the rebellion happens because people believe the princes are dead.
3: And is it fair to say that the princes, though we don't know conclusively what happened, the princes couldn't have been killed without. Richard's at least tacit approval of that happening. Yeah.
2: You know, when Richard, as king, takes those executive decisions, um, he can very much, like Henry II, Thomas Becket, you know, ask for someone to be who will rid me of this turbulent priest, who will rid me of these turbulent children. Um, I think the, the question of uh, Richard doing that and then how a rumor came about that they were dead you know, the Corolan Chronicler talks about Richard then actively putting out a rumour to say that the children are dead. And that's the other thing that's very interesting in, in medieval society, and particularly in this time, is the power of rumour and the power of disinformation and counter-information. And did Richard then put out the information openly that the princes were dead, that Edward V his brother were dead, in order to just say, look, this is a problem, we're going to draw a line under it, they no longer exist. But the, the fact that there is simply no evidence, I mean, what's, you know, there is evidence for is that, you know, not only in the central government accounts, but also in the local government accounts, as it sort of filtered down, people talk about Edward the bastard. People, you know, seem to trust that that royal version of the story that Edward is illegitimate. And that's what we have going forwards. But I think Richard had a decision to look at whether to keep the princes, you know, in the tower. Henry VII did. And when you look at this in a wider context of, of other kings going forward, um, Edward IV you know, looked after Henry VI to the point where we got to the Battle of Barnet and eventually lost patience. And then mysteriously, Henry VI uh, was found dead in the tower in, uh, on the 21st of May, 1471. Henry VII, too, recognised that the biggest threat to his kingship was Clarence's son, Edward, Earl of Warwick, kept in the tower until eventually he found a way by using Perkin Warbeck to have Edward killed it's other kings have, have done it they recognise the threat of having these sort of you know, people close in the royal blood to their own dynasty so Richard is not unique in, in making that decision um, he's possibly unique in then openly publicising the fact that they were and were dead
3: So that's an interesting point then because Richard is often seen as certainly by his detractors as one of the worst medieval kings if not England's worst king but actually were his worst excesses no different to that of other medieval monarchs I think this is
2: the point about getting back to the, the the mores of the age of actually looking at sort of the brutality that existed as the so-called wars of the roses progressed you, know, you started off with people being released and pardoned and eventually that doesn't take place and, you know, judicial executions then start taking place at the battlefield and I think you know you only have to look actually at actually richard's own body that was discovered you know in the car park in leicester to understand the sort of brutality of conflict and the consequences of losing power and then, therefore, the threat that people are under when they make decisions when they're in power in order to to stay in power. You know, Richard's mutilated corpse and you know, the treatment that he receives, um, that's no different from corpses that have, have been found at the Balotowton in 1461. So this is a high stakes Game of Thrones here. that people are are playing a very dangerous game and they recognize that. And whatever side people are on, you know, whether it's the White Rose or it's the Red Rose, they're equally bloody. And so for Richard, you know, I think the, the problem with Richard is he lost, but then he lost control of the narrative permanently. And having lost control of that narrative, what well, the Tudors were so successful, that was obviously sort of overlaying. And I think for the first time for the Tudors, recognising the value of history. You had the Yorkists themselves had uh, chronicles written up, the so-called arrival of Edward IV, that sort of you know, proclaims his success in taking back the throne in 1471. You know, they used history, but not in the same way that, that the Tudors did. So what we see at the same time is, is with Richard then suddenly losing the throne, 485, you have historians like Bernard Andre coming on the scene and then Polydor, Virgil. And what Virgil does, and I make this point in the beginning of the book, is he starts writing history's biography. So instead of like having medieval chronicles going year by year by year, which is a bit like what the Crowland Chronicler is, Virgil begins to moralise. So what you see is sort of constructs of reigns being fitted around the king's personality and consequences of decisions being taken and moral consequences and that's the f- and for us it's obvious now you know we, we read biographies. our history is set in that biographical mould so we approach richard as you know good king bad king we look at people's foibles by, by reigns by dynasties but this is new for the tudors to introduce this through having their sort of official historians like Polly or virgil and richard is the victim of that official history is then being cast upon him. I don't think he's, you know, he's, he's no different than kings that have gone before him in, in terms of uh, the consequences of, of disloyalty and rebellion, the price people pay is high. But equally, you know, for those supporters who look at Richard say, oh, he's such a great king, you know, he was a, a fount of all justice and uh, he looked after the poor. Um, that is no different also than what medieval kings did because that was the purpose of medieval kingship. I've tried to make the point in the book that we get away from the black legend. I think we've done that quite effectively. We, we've, but we've also got to make sure we don't go down a white legend route of saying that Richard was beyond, you know, it was perfect and somehow was an sort of idealized medieval monarch who was better or, you know, than other kings. You know, he's not better; he's not worse, but he is at an apex in history that is 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 tr- totally extraordinary. You know, there's 1483, one of those rare periods where there's three kings on the throne, and his life, in a way, is illustrative. Of how to wield power and then how not to to use power. The way he uses power leads to his fall because he alienates a significant part of the kingdom.
3: So, to what extent was it the disappearance of the Prince of the Tower that began to turn the country against him, or was it more other decisions he took? Well, it's sort of
2: you then begin to see the spiral of decline. Really, that it's the rebellion which then destabilizes Richard to a point where he then becomes a weak king. And when he becomes a weak king, not only do people sense blood, he begins to lose authority even further and have to take decisions that are then unpopular. And once those unpopular decisions are taken, he then moves from a realm of being just a king into being a tyrant. And it's that debate around, you know, did people view Richard III as, as a good king or a bad king? At the time, supporters who were rewarded with lands, uh, with office, obviously saw him as a good king. You know, you look at the city of York, he'd been a very strong supporter of the city. They talked about how Richard was unlawfully killed and talked about how he mercifully reigned upon us. And but that's not necessarily the case in the south of, of the kingdom. And the problem with the rebellion is that, Most of the southern overlords and the nobility and the gentry then left the country after the failed rebellion to join Henry Tudor in France, and so we then have a vacuum of power, which then Richard fills by taking his northern supporters. He's grown up in the north; he's got sort of you know this power base up in the north. He's and he has these people he can trust, and that's the that's the dilemma and the the paradox of Richard's reign is that for those people who he puts the most trust in and the most support in, and he is genuinely a, a devout believer in loyalty, he rewards those people who've been loyal to him. He's got a unique bond, but he imposes their rule in the south of the kingdom. And it sort of creates a problem where then more and more people begin to defect and gradually his energies are sapped. And he spends most of his time dealing with the threat of Henry Tudor. And the other thing is that you know we think of this as being sort of the Tudors versus Richard III, Henry Tudor's invasion is effectively a French invasion. He's being sponsored by the French, paid for by the French. Um, it's a foreign invasion, no different from, you know, 1066, effectively. When you look at the numbers, you know, he's got French mercenaries there. And really Richard is then embattled in this foreign policy nightmare of having a what he can use as a pretender, you know, Henry Tudor being supported by a foreign power who wants to support Henry Tudor to stop Richard III invading France. And uh, Richard's problems just get worse and worse. You do feel sorry for him at times. I mean, you do feel sort of like for the guy, as a politician myself, you know, I I, I recognise that sometimes you need luck. And and Richard certainly is not a a lucky king. And that things go from bad to worse. He has a, a Effectively, there's a, a large recession going on during his his time as king, and that clearly drives things. There's clearly economic problems that we still don't quite understand that we need to do further work on, um, and that sort of you know drives this sense of hopelessness, drives this sense of discomfort and disquiet, um, and and it basically sort of leads to a, a point where Richard can't do anything else apart from being on the back foot
3: dealing with this rebellion. And so, when we come to Bosworth, if Bosworth had gone the other way, could Richard have clung on, or, or was he essentially finished anyway, of just waiting for the final blow? I think by the time we get to
2: Bosworth, you know, Richard's own dynasty hangs by a thread. His wife's died in March 1485. His son, his only son and heir, Edward of Middleham, died in April 1484. You know, Richard is there as the only single scion of the Yorkist dynasty, and you can see how fragile it is because, to start with, he seems to um, set up as his next heir. Edward Earl of Warwick, Clarence's son, then realizes his mistake because he's already disinherited Edward Earl of Warwick. In, when he took the throne, saying Clarence's treasons prevented Edward Earl uh, of Warwick from ever being legitimate heir. And so, who does Richard turn to? And there's John Earl of Lincoln, who's sort of a son of his sister. Um, Richard is attempting to to marry. That's one of the other problems. Is that then? Rumors begin that he's going to marry or attempt to marry Elizabeth of York, Edward IV's daughter. I think we can comprehensively disprove that. They are rumors. Richard is attempting, actually, in fact, to to, to organize a Portuguese marriage uh, with Joanna of Portugal. But he's thirty. You know, he's thirty one, thirty two. Um, that's the other thing is that when you think of Richard's youth, it's one of those surprising things. I think when I tell people that, you know, everyone thinks of the sort of hunchback of in his fifties or something. Or you know, thinks of. Uh, uh, Lawrence olivier's portrayal of of Richard and you think of a, a sort of older man, but you know, in fact he's incredibly young, so he would have had the opportunity to remarry again, but time is is not on his side um and people would have recognized that this is a destabilized dynasty so if Richard had survived, you know we would have seen i think the c- problems continuing that existed. He clearly believed that when he went to Bosworth he was confident he was going to win. And, then, you know, and there was no reason why he shouldn't have won. He had an army of between ten and 15,000 men versus Henry Tudor's army of 5,000 men. He went there wearing the crown, um, you know, which he had put on at the beginning of the battle and put on again, because he saw it almost like a second coronation. If he could go into battle and win, as he had done in 1471, in battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury, I mean, you know, Richard is an undefeated general versus Henry Tudor, who's got no military experience. Richard would have felt that somehow this was a new rebirth of his reign, that he could have proved himself as a second coronation, that God was on his side. And when he realises, I think, at, at Bosworth, that actually the nobility is not on his side, he said, at what point Richard begun to realise that he hadn't necessarily looked after the men who thought they were going to be looked after, you know, in particular Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. You know, Richard's the Lord of the North. He becomes king. Northumberland thinks, right, okay, maybe I might get a bit of control of the North back again. But he doesn't, Richard, hold on to, hold on to it. Establishes the Council of the North, which seems a good thing institutionally, but actually it creates these sort of pressure points where you know the nobility want to be rewarded and they're, and they're not. And the men don't turn out for Richard, which is why he has to do that fateful charge towards Henry Tudor in order to try and, to get rid of him. It's the last thing you should do. You know, all the military textbooks like Vegetius and talk about him, Christina Pisan, if you're the king, stay at the back, don't go to the front. But Richard charges in as a sort of epitome of chivalry, and all his detractors and opponents recognise that he died valiantly, fighting thick set in the press of his enemies. But he did so in desperation, because he knew that he had no other option but to do so.
3: And have the recently discovered remains of Richard III in any way shaped our view of his demise and Bosworth, do you think?
2: Well, I am very interested in in looking at the context of the the wounds and and what that might say and what we can or cannot say. It doesn't change anything, I think, in terms of the, the overall narrative of the fact that you know Richard was cut down and died you know, in the mire and the filth, and we knew he was thrown over the back of a horse. And it just confirms, I think, a lot of the details that we knew from some of the literature. So there was a Welsh poem which talked about how a Welsh halberdier had slain the boar and shaved his head. And I think we'd all sort of wondered, you know, what does this word, shaved his head, in Welsh mean? But actually, when you look at the wounds that Richard suffered to his skull you have this wound at the back where the flap of bone has been shorn off. And it's probably only been done so by a halberd, which is a six foot long um axe-like instrument. It's the velocity of being on a, on a pole coming down very fast. It's always a, you know, shaved it clean off. And that literally Richard did have the back of his head shaved off, so you know, the poem has improved right, and it probably was a halberdier that killed him. Um, but looking at the sequencing of the wounds, you have these nick marks on his jaw where it looks like the strap for his helmet's been cut off. And we know Richard had his helmet on. We know he had the crown on top of his helmet when he went into that last charge. But Richard's having his helmet forcibly removed. He's got like stab marks into his cheeks, which seem to have come from a dagger from behind. So someone's grabbing Richard. They then seem to have got him on the floor on his knees because in order to get that wound coming down with a halberd, he couldn't have done it when Richard was a horse. This is not these aren't battle injuries. For me, you know, they're execution industry. Richard is being executed on the battlefield. And that's something I think that we haven't really focused enough on is that he's being pulled off his horse and he's not sort of died fighting He's died with men holding him down. And then the final wound is a sword thrust from the back of the, the neck right through his brain. We know it goes right through his brain onto the top of his skull because there's a little indentation mark where which can line up with the sword entrance. Someone thrust a sword right up from the base of his um, neck where it joins the spine through to his skull. And that can only be done with Richard on his knees. You know, it's not something you could do both standing. So the question, I think, as a historian, you've got ourselves on the basis of that evidence, is you know, if Richard was killed by you know, execution... Was that normal? No. Highly unnormal for an anointed king to be executed in this way on the battlefield. It just doesn't happen. Even Henry VI was arrested, was found wandering at the Battle of Barnet and was taken down to London. Did Henry Tudor want to have Richard executed or would he have preferred to have him paraded through the streets in humiliation um, after he'd won the battle? And I wonder whether when you look at who... Killed Richard, and yeah you know, that's an open question, whether it was the charge of Sir William Stanley, um, then his troops, his Welsh troops coming through, and forcing you know Richard into a marsh where he was brought down. did they go too far and that's one of the other questions when you look at Stanley, he rebels against Henry Tudor, Henry the seventh. 10 years later because he's never given the rewards he wanted. And so does Stanley and his men go too far at Bosworth and kill Richard when Henry never asked him to be killed? You know, it's one of these questions that sort of I think we can ask ourselves, you know, was this an a unauthorised execution that took place? Um, and if so, did they do it because Richard was so unpopular? Did they do it on Henry Tudor's orders? Or was it something that they, just, they did off, off their own instigation?
3: It's really fascinating to think about on what might have happened to the end. And also, like you say, it seems strange that they'd kill him in his way without Henry VII having approved it, because that's clearly a major decision what to do with him.
2: There's sort of parallels there. Barnet, um, the Battle of Barnet in 1471, where Edward IV wins the battle and the, the kingmaker, his uh, cousin, Richard Neville, flees the battle and Edward sends out orders for for Warwick not to be killed but he is still then hacked down by um, his own men and killed whether they do so for plunder whether they also do so because they think as long as this person is alive, there still is the potential that myself and all my thousands of other men might have to go through this ordeal of having to fight another fight again. Um, you know, it has happened, but not with a anointed king. And I think that is the sort of remarkable thing, is that you, you know Richard is the last king to, to die on an English battlefield. But the very fact that he does so is down to the fact that you know he could have been saved. The wounds show that he was pinned down and was dispatched. And uh, I'm not sure that was on Henry Tudor's orders. He was obviously far away from from the battlefield to start with. Richard gets close to him, but Henry is surrounded by the this sort of protection this this ring of men. So in terms of the, the fighting that took place and then Richard being dispatched, whether Henriette would ever have left that protective ring, it's unlikely. He had no experience in fighting a battle. He never really engages in hand-to-hand combat. Even at the Battle of Stoke two years later, he doesn't engage in hand-to-hand combat. He remains in this sort of protective ring. He's present on the battle, but um, never really engages. So I do feel that the, the action that would have taken place, you know, obviously unvelops very fast, but... Um,
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And so much about
3: Rich's life that people talk about is about his reign, usurpation, the princes, his death but have you uncovered any new aspects about just his personality and his kind of man he was away from being king
2: what I try to do as a historian is that you have in the medieval period it's not the same as the Tudor period uh, you have this sort of growth in state papers you have this growth in the survival of letters in the 16th century which give people's personal views and opinions that you just don't have in the 15th century so as as a Fifteenth-century story, and you have to take a different approach to piecing together someone's personality. You can't rely on having those sort of statements. You know, and we we have letters that Richard, well-known Richard, writing to his mother, Richard writing reaction. I've mentioned about the rebellion of the Duke of Buckingham. Examples of Richard's handwriting. What you have to do is also then take um, fragments of the books they've owned, of the jewelry they've bought, of the loans they've made of the connections that they have with the various different sort of members of the court, which rewards they're giving to people. And what I've tried to do in, in the book is go back to sort of first principles of finding new stuff in the exchequer documents, the um, E-404s as I call them. It's very a fantastic wealth of, of documents. I, I'm very evangelical about this. Up in the map room in the in Kew, in the National Archives, you can order this stuff. You can still you know, unru- unravel it and you have the paleography of being able to read the the, the handwriting, um, you can still pick up fragments of a diamond that Richard bought or a particular cup that he might have given to somebody and, and what does that say about their relationship. So I've tried to sort of bring all that together um, for the first time and I think also use uh, a couple of other documents that aren't really well known that, that exist. E159s, for example, um, and Pipe Rolls, the Exchequer. So I'm hoping the book has gone further in terms of obviously relying a lot on some of the great work that's been done by by historians over the years and by the Richard III society but there's still more to do and i hope that sort of you know even by showing the amount of fish that richard ordered up for his coronation banquet you can get a sense of the opulence of his court and making those links between nicholas von popelau's account where he talks about Richard's chapel and the fantastic music that came from it, showing that Richard was deliberately you know, ordering um, searches across the country to find young boys to be able to sing, excellent scholars to be able to sing in, in his choirs. I've discovered um, documents that I think I ended up releasing a couple of years ago where Richard shows that he set up a foundation at York for 100 priests to pray for his soul and so, you know, what does that say about where Richard may or may not have wanted to be buried in the, in the longer term? And, and so for me, it's just finding those little nuggets and then piecing them together um, provides a, a new dimension of, of Richard's personality.
3: And do you get a sense of the kind of king he might have been if the rebellion hadn't happened, if his reign hadn't been cut short so much?
2: Well, I think that the context in which Richard was operating as king was one in which, you know, we still have to think about that continental dimension. You know, we still have to think about, you know, France... Brittany. He'd Richard had um, prepared to send over a thousand archers to help out in Brittany. I think if if Richard had managed to sort out his own domestic problems, he would either have turned to war in Scotland or war in France. And there's a a document that I've translated from full for the first time, which you know, Richard sends out this letter in August uh, 1484, talking about you know as a prince, I am determined in person to fight in France. It's a paraphrase, but effectively. I think, you know, Richard was always desperate for military glory. He got a bit of a taste of the action in, in Scotland when he was Duke of Gloucester. He was bitterly disappointed in fourteen seventy-five when Edward IV marched all his army over to fight the French and then signed the Treaty of Pekinry and, and you know got a rich pension. But I think Richard would have looked as a a soldier king to to have then fought a continental war. Yeah, I think Richard is no different than a medieval king in the context of the Hundred Years' War and the English failure in the Hundred Years' War still like has a huge shadow over the, the whole of English politics. And uh, I think Richard would have sought to have learnt the lessons from his brother's reign, which was that failure to fight in France meant that you had a sort of fragmented nobility who were unable to see the crown as the fount of their frustrations. They wanted to go and fight in order to make money, prove themselves, wrap themselves in military glory. I think Richard understood that uniquely. I think he understood that. Edward IV didn't want to fight in Scotland. Richard was gagging to do so. You know What are the consequences of that would have been? I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure. That was one of the reasons why Henry Tudor ends up as king, is because the French are so terrified that Richard wants to fight a war with them. They'll do anything to stop Richard, you know, descending upon them. Which is why they sponsor Henry Tudor in the first place, destabilise um, Richard's kingdom. And so I think that would have been, you know, a certain project for him. I think, you know, when you look at how would his court developed, I mean, Richard's, you know, more books survive of Richard's than any other medieval king, really. And uh, you know, he is well read. He may have even been preparing to get into sort of life in the clergy or when he was very young. Obviously, events moved in a different direction. He didn't go down that way. But there is a, a clear sense when you look at sort of his connections, particularly his strong connections to Cambridge University, early humanism as well. That we would have seen a a scholar king that was somebody who would have developed his, his court and when you look at the, the the amount of money he spends not only as a duke I mean literally he is putting his finances under severe pressure sponsoring all these religious foundations even you know as Duke of Gloucester but as a king the amount of money he's then spending on building the amount of money he's spending on setting up foundations in York and elsewhere I think probably you know you we would have in the longer term, have, have seen the significant impact of Richard's reign. If he would reigned beyond the seven hundred and something odd days that he reigned, the survival of what would have taken place, I think, would have been, been visually around today. I think sort of the Richard's interests as somebody who is uh, he, the consumption at his court and his, his his belief in in visual splendour, you know, I think would have been reflected and, and would have been built up as well.
3: In your other day job, you're a politician and and now a minister as well. So, I know you have alluded to this earlier, but has that work given you any kind of maybe added sympathy for Richard or any added insights to what it's like dealing in difficult political environments? It's, it is interesting when you look at
2: my work in, in politics. You know, I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough that I've been there as a backbencher, now closer to the centre of power. <laughs> the one thing I, I find fascinating is I'm, I'm a minister in the cabinet office. Every day I go in and it's... 17th century facade, but actually, it's got Henry VIII's tennis court, the survival in the middle of it still, and something called Cockpit Passage, which I walk over every morning, and that's effectively the viewing gallery to sort of inner tennis courts and all this sort of Tudor survival they'd found in the in the 50s and 60s that you know, still there, part of fragments of the old Whitehall Palace. But when it comes to you know power and, and and how power operates, it is you still see the same frameworks of actually how the geography of power operates, the sort of closeness towards the king the leader and who takes decisions but those sort of those decisions aren't taken individually and that's what i've tried to get across in the book and what my own experience you know in politics show me sort of frequently is that people may be blamed individually for decisions but those decisions are taken corporately and i don't mean corporate in terms of the word we use now but there has to be a collective support through doing so so you know in, you know, in politics we have when government decisions are taken, you know we have collective responsibility. There are right rounds; every government department has to respond to a right round to be able to see whether approved policies then announced. I mean, the level at which government operates—I never knew when I was a backbencher—to be able to see the complexity of actually the machine effectively making sure that um, every department is content with the policy that is road tested. I mean, it's incredibly impressive to see that. But equally, what would have happened in the medieval period? is that when you see documents being presented to Richard, there is a whole organisational structure behind it, which we're only beginning really to understand. Some historians like Rosemary Horrocks have done some fantastic work on looking at the king's household, but it's that sort of organisational structure that Richard brings effectively a new dimension to it, he brings all his own men in. He's already created his own sort of royal court up in the north, and he's got his supporters, he's got his members of the nobility who, who back him, and it's at what point... We have this debate around Henry VIII all the time. You know, we, is it the king versus the minister? And I, it's only the, We have that debate because Cromwell's papers survive. Wolsey's papers survive. So we have a better knowledge of that ministerial working. What we don't have is for Richard's reign is we understand the king, and we have the actions of the king, but we don't necessarily have the ministerial papers or what goes on beneath that level. We know he had you know, William Catesby, Richard Ratcliffe, Lord Lovell, who were his sort of key agents. The rat, the cat, the dog, as the rhyme talked about, all ruleth England under a hog. But to what extent they were actually controlling Richard as possibly his sort of, you know, overpowering advisers. They clearly in the um final part of Richard's reign in April 1485, they force him, oddly, to make a declaration at the Guildhall in London that he's not going to marry his niece. You know, they actually say, Well, you've got to do this. It's a rare glimpse you get of actually the sort of the leader versus the advisers and obviously you know we have that in modern politics now you know you can have the the prime minister who takes is accountable for decisions but obviously there is a whole political court behind those decisions and so it's fascinating i think to see as a minister how political life operates. But that's something that, you know, we're still on the same white hole site as where medieval kings would have operated. As I said, the tennis courts are still there. They obviously had different pastimes, but the geography of power hasn't changed. But equally, the, the sort of functions and, and structures of power you know still do remain constant.
3: This book clearly has taken a lot of research and has a lot of new insights into it. But is there anything else that you think historians still need to find out about, Rich? Is there any other big things that we could still discover? I think...
2: Obviously, we've talked about the issue of the survival of the princes. I think when it comes to looking at Richard III and, and what more work can be done, as I said, you know, it would be great if we could get published some of the, the, the more evidence that is there in terms of the letters that survive. There's not many, but there's still lots that's not been published. I think, for me, a, a lot of work has been done on... His, there's been recent books, for instance, by um, Stephen Gunn, The New Men of, of Henry VII. Stephen was my um, former supervisor. 15 odd something years ago and uh, I think those structures of power are are things that have, have, have been investigated in the Tudor period looking at new men but I think there were new men in Richard III's reign as well and actually sort of understanding sort of how those people operated how they managed to sort of attach themselves to Richard's court understanding the transition that Richard made from being Duke um, of Gloucester, up at, when he was up in the north, and had sort of lands, and how he managed to make that transition as king. But equally, I think a lot of the cultural things for Richard's reign as well. You know, understanding sort of his theology as well is something very important. So I think you know Richard has been trawled over a lot, but in a way, and this is a plea to you know academic historians as well, that I think yeah, you know, I'm a popular historian, I, I, I try to make my books as academic as possible. I try to go back to the original sources. I try to study the manuscripts. But ultimately, I'm writing narrative history because I believe in trying to get to an audience that then is going to look at the book, read the book, and then maybe turn to the end notes and think, oh, actually, I might go follow that document up, but realize the potential of the archives that is there. The problem you have with Rich, I feel, is that because it is a topic which is so prominent, the king has his supporters still, um, some of them who are, are particularly vehement in their defense of the king, that academics sometimes shy away from tackling Richard III because it is a topic which, you know, as an academic historian, you might then be seen as somehow um, overtly popular if you if you touch him. That's not necessarily the case with Henry VII, it's not necessarily the case with Edward IV. You know, sort of almost by covering Richard, you're losing your academic credentials. And I hope I hope, one of the things I'd love to come out of this book is to say, actually, yeah, yes, there is a popular appeal to Richard. Yes, there is always a thirst for his story uh, being known by the wider population. And obviously he's come top again for the third year running of uh, BBC History Magazine's history, history list, top 100. And, uh, but that doesn't mean, as an academic, that you should shy away from Richard. You shouldn't treat him any differently to, to the other non-academics, or to Edward IV, or to Richard III. And so I'm hoping we can bridge that that world between the world of academia and the world of of popular history. You know, something I believe passionately, and that's why I turned to, you know, I gave up a career in academia because I got an opportunity to write a biography of Edward VI. And ever since then, I've tried to sort of use my academic knowledge, limited as it is, to be able to write books that people can read, but then also if people are beginning on an academic career, you know, can use them in order to do even further work into the archives.
3: That was Chris Skidmore. Richard III, Brother, Protector King, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And as I mentioned in my introduction, Chris has written a piece for our November edition, which has just gone on sale in the UK and in our many digital formats. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on the gunpowder plot, the Battle of El Alamein, the Russian Revolution, and a whole lot more. Look out for our November issue now in all good newsagents or via your e-reader, phone or tablet. And now it's time for this week's history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
5: An Anglo-Saxon settlement has been unearthed near Ipswich during preparations for a wind farm which is being built off the coast of Suffolk. Artifacts found during the latest excavations include a bread oven, a corn dryer and a broken millstone – leading the archaeological team to suggest that the site may have been used for the seasonal work of milling. Previous discoveries at the site, described by the team as complex, include fragments of Bronze Age cooking pots, a wind instrument carved from bone, and ditches more than two metres deep, which may have been used by Viking defences. Richard Newman from Wardell Armstrong Archaeology told the East Anglian Daily Times quote we already know there were later medieval settlements in the area due to the presence of surviving churches from the period it is safe to say we already know a lot more about suffolk's history today than we did a year ago he added meanwhile the only painting by leonardo da vinci that is privately owned is expected to reach 100 million dollars roughly 75 million pounds when sold at auction in november The painting by the Italian Renaissance artist and innovator is known as Salvatore Mundi, or Saviour of the World, and was painted in around 1500 during the same period as the Mona Lisa. The work depicts Jesus Christ. Its remarkable history includes a place in the royal collections of King Charles I and Charles II, and Charles Herbert Sheffield, the illegitimate son of the Duke of Buckingham. The painting was lost for 140 years during the 18th and 19th centuries, though it resurfaced when it was bought by Sir Charles Robinson for the Cook Collection in 1900. However, its forgotten origins meant that it was sold by Sotheby's in 1958 for just £45. After six years of investigation, the painting was confirmed as a da Vinci work in 2011 and will next travel to Hong Kong, San Francisco and London before it is sold by Christie's in New York later this year.
3: OK, well, that's about all for today, but please do join us on Monday when we'll be talking to Neil McGregor about the history of global religion.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.